Greetings from Hannibal, Missouri. And welcome to Rivertown Review, the podcast. An informative and hopefully entertaining look at all things Hannibal. With Megan Rapp. People tend to come, visit, they like it here, they move here. And Harold Smith. In our biased viewpoint, this part of the country, this community, is an excellent place to be from. And now, Rivertown Review, the podcast. Episode 7 of Hannibal's Rivertown Review, the podcast. I'm Harold Smith. And I'm Megan Rapp. And we thank you for joining us, whether you have found us uh, on rivertownreview.com or iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever it might be. Facebook. Maybe you've heard about it from our fan club. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the, we have a... We that have, one guy uh, down the street? Well, we no, have... the one lady. Yeah, one lady. Yeah, we have, we have someone who has volunteered, if we ever have a fan club... To be the president, uh, not to drop any names or anything, Marilyn Richards oh, at, at uh, Parks and I Rec. I love Marilyn Richards. I, we've, we told her that she might possibly be the only member of our fan club currently. <laughs> so uh, technically she is the president. Marilyn does not have time to be the president of the fan club. She's as crazy busy as I am. It, it would, it would, it, I know, the fan mail and everything is just exhausting. <laughs> oh, it, isn't it though? Yes. Holy we, cow. We even gave people, well, no, we didn't, no, it, we, we. First, we called it homework, and then we thought better of it because we were doing the the, the Sawyer principle. Uh, we were trying to take something that most that is actually work and making it fun, you know, as Tom Sawyer did. None of us in Hannibal ever do that. No. No, never. Never, ever happens. Lisa Marks is back in with us. Uh, if you uh, were aboard for Episode 6, uh, then uh, you know, Lisa uh, told us her story, her and her husband Ken's story, uh, about uh, falling into category of people that could live anywhere. Uh, and we have told you in previous podcasts that there have literally been people that have come off the river and now live here. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, I think Lisa's story, um, you know, came up the river via Highway 61. But, uh, yeah, came and, and stayed and, and did things that they feel like couldn't do any place else but but in Hannibal. Well, when your when your other options are Detroit and Rockford, I mean, my goodness, <laughs> well, that's a no brainer if ever there was one. Yeah, in nine, in two thousand and nine, I did not want to move to Detroit. That was not on my radar. Oh, well, for so many reasons, but mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But anyhow, well, we have given uh, we have paid homage a bit to Mark Twain in previous podcasts. Yes, we have, um, and we have. Kind of done some teasers that hey, there are some other really cool things to see and do in Hannibal, and um, and, and other famous people. And not only not only actual real life people, but actual even fictional characters that refer to Hannibal as their hometown. Yes, well that that'll have to be a a, that's, that's a, a, a pod a future a future. Yeah, that's podcast. a whole another thing. Colonel that, Potter comes to mind. Yeah, that's yes. right. You, we we mentioned him. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, the 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 only two I could think of offhand was Colonel Sherman Potter from Mash. And uh, Shoeless Joe from Hannibal Moe from Damn Yankees. You know, those are those are the only two fictionals that come to mind. And then there was. But uh, hey, how many other towns can claim to have fictional people from them? That's right. That's right. They they thought of, they thought was... enough of Hannibal, uh, whoever made up these characters, to have them be from Hannibal. Exactly. Which brings us to, whenever people think about Hannibal, they think of Mark Twain. But uh, once they get past that, the other famous person is Margaret Tobin Brown. The unsinkable Molly Brown. Yes. Those of you who may know uh, Margaret 
Tobin Brown, who was known as the unsinkable Molly Brown, is one of the most famous survivors of Titanic. Um, there is something about the story of the sinking of Titanic that endures well over 100 years later. People are still fascinated by that ship and by the stories and the lives of the people that were aboard ship, uh, not only those who perished, but also those who survived. And I don't know of the research that I have done over the years, I don't know of anybody that has a more remarkable life story and story about being on Titanic and surviving Titanic than the unsinkable Molly Brown. Yeah, and, and how many bazillion dollars did that movie make? Yeah, bazillion. Some, yeah, and people would watch it. You know, of course, those of us who are have this cynical streak in them, uh, you know, tell people, I don't care how many times you watch the movie, the boat still sinks. And Leonardo yes. DiCaprio still dies, which is not necessarily a bad thing. And you can cut this out if you need to, but the funniest thing I've seen recently, <laughs> Kate Winslet was on the Stephen Colbert show. Oh, and okay. Colbert said, I'm sorry, but there was room enough for two on that door. <laughs> and Megan has mentioned she, that before, yes. It was she actually door. kicked her shoes off, and they both climbed up on his desk and kind of laid side by side to prove that there would have been enough room on that door. That was one of the funniest moments on Stephen Colbert I have ever seen. I love Kate Winslet. She's awesome. Although so yeah, that's It would funny. also have to do with like flotation, because like, if you're heavy, it could have sank. I, I don't know. I Well, she also was like... I'll never let you go. And she's ripping his hand out and <laughs> dropping him into the ocean. And I'll never we... let you go. So, yeah, that whole scene was a little wonky <laughs> for my know, taste. And, but and... I digress. Okay, so back to Molly Brown. Uh, hey, you, if you're digressing and you're with us, you fit right in. <laughs> you are in good company. Oh, you betcha. You're, you're a part it's of the It's the club. color that makes the podcast it's happy. Something like that. So, yeah, so Margaret Brown was born and raised in Hannibal, born here in 1867. She would have been 150 years old. Uh, she'll be 151 in July. And I think the thing that I have found so important about her story is that so many people are born somewhere and then leave, you know, um, they're here till the age of two or three and then they leave. Margaret was born here and lived here until she was 18 years old. Now, for any of you out there who have gone to your high school class reunion, no matter if it's your 20th or your 50th, once you hit the age of 18, I truly believe your personality is locked down. You are who you are going to be in life, you know? You might look a little different, oh. but when it comes down to it, your voice sound doesn't change, your demeanor doesn't change, your personality is locked down by the time you're 18. And you know that because you go and see these folks 30 years later, and they are exactly who they were when they were 18 years old, right? My, my wife has talked about that. She makes it a point not to go to her class <laughs> reunions. She went to one and said, all of, even though it's... 15, 20 years later, whatever, uh -huh. all of the clicks yeah, gradually they went just right back go, into place. Yeah, it's exactly. You are who you're going to be. Yep. Now, having said that, for Margaret Brown to end up being this larger than life, amazing woman in the progressive era meant that she had some fortitude and some uh, home training that she had to have learned here in Hannibal. She was who she was when she left. So for her to be this plucky and this strong and this independent and this and this uh, just just amazing, this colorful character, something happened to her during her childhood in Hannibal that led her to be that person, to prepare her for this life that she was going to lead. All right, so here's the big 
condensed version of her life. She leaves Hannibal at the age of 18, moves to Leadville, Colorado with her brother. And they were just going because there was no opportunity in Hannibal for the Irish. At that time, the Irish were lower class. And going out west with the gold rush and the silver rush meant that anybody from anywhere had the opportunity to become something. And she was determined by that time to marry a wealthy man. She had seen all these magnificent mansions built here on Millionaire's Row in Hannibal. There was great wealth in Hannibal during that time because of the lumber industry. And she wanted to emulate that. But she knew she would never break that that glass ceiling here in Hannibal. So she moved to Leadville, married a man three months later at the age of 18. She, he was actually 31, but she was 18. She married James Joseph Brown. He was nothing special. He was not a millionaire. He was not wealthy. He had a good job working at the mine there in Leadville. At the time, they mined silver. Well, in 1893, seven years after they were married, the silver standard was changed in the U.S. to the gold standard to guarantee the silver, the, the, the dollar. And when they did, silver just plummeted over the night. There was no cause for it. Prices dropped. Leadville had 90% unemployment. So at this time, the mine owners went to Mr. Brown. He had been studying, you know, physics and geology and engineering, all these things. He was very much a self-taught man. They said, you know, Mr. Brown, we've got all this time down at the mine. There's a mine that we never have been able to tap into. It's made of dolomite sand, the shaft is. And every time we send miners in, the shaft collapses in and it's dangerous. If there's any way you can figure out how to shore that up and send miners in, we'd like to see what's down inside this mine since we were idle right now. So using two by fours and bales of hay, he got the shaft open, sent miners in. They hit the largest gold deposit in the state of Colorado. Oh, oh. At one point, the Little Johnny Mine, which is what it was called, was producing 130 tons of gold ore per day. Wow. And that production went on for years and years and years. Well, as a thank you, the company went to Mr. Brown and said that uh, they were so grateful for his service. They gave him one-eighth ownership of the company, 12,500 shares of stock, put him on the board of directors, and they were instant millionaires. Now... I don't know if a company would reward an employee in such a way today. <laughs> Probably not. But these folks were very, very gracious. And they so, uh, yeah, so all of a sudden at the age of 26, Margaret Brown is a millionaire. So at that time, the mine owners did not live in Leadville, way up at the top of the Rockies. They all lived in Denver. And so the family moved to Denver, bought a mansion. And I say mansion, but if any of you have seen the Molly Brown house in Denver, they're on Pennsylvania Avenue, it's not really a mansion. It's, it's a large house. But it's very similar to the, the houses here in Hannibal on Millionaire's Row. And I think she walked into that house and looked around, and it was everything she'd ever dreamed of as a young girl growing up here in Hannibal. So they purchased the house. They lived there, started a family. Uh, at one point, she and J.J. separated in 1909. What happened is this. Margaret was very strong-willed. She was a good Irish Catholic girl, but she was also very progressive. And she had worked here in Hannibal at the age of 13, tobacco factory. She would actually strip the leaves from the stems. Well, she didn't think 13-year-old girls should have to do that kind of manual labor 16 hours a day. So she fought for child labor laws. She was a women's suffragette, of course, fighting for the women to vote. Uh, she was very concerned about workers' rights. And her husband's on the other side of this aisle. Now he's a mine owner. 
He's a capitalist. He's up there with, you know, the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts. And so he's not so much for eight-hour workdays and unions and child labor laws. And so they became very uh, separate in their worldviews, and they decided to separate. Well, he was actually very gracious and gave her a pretty good stipend to live on. And so she started to travel. She liked to travel, loved Europe. Uh, Paris in particular was one of her favorite places to go to. And during these world travels, she started to hobnob with the wealthiest people in the world. The Vanderbilts, the Astors, the time owned the Marble House in Newport, Rhode Island. This is an 80,000 square foot palace made of Italian marble that is modeled to look like the Palace of Versailles in France. This is a very nice home. And so <laughs> now think about this. Let's back up for a minute. Of the podcast. Think of back up for a minute <laughs> yes. now. Molly oh, Brown, yeah. this little Irish girl that was stripping tobacco leaves at the age of 13, suddenly is best friends with Alva Vanderbilt, who is the wealthiest woman in the world. This is what leads her to Titanic. She becomes friends with the Astors. And John Jacob Astor IV had divorced his first wife which Margaret found to be perfectly fine because she couldn't stand this lady. But he had fallen in love with an 18-year-old girl named Madeline. Now, at this time, John Astor is about the same age as Margaret. They're 40, 44, 45. Well, he can't find anyone to perform the ceremony, their marriage ceremony. It's too scandalous. So he says to Mrs. Brown, you know, maybe you could be of some assistance. And so she's gracious enough that she puts together a nice ceremony, finds a minister to perform, and they're able to marry. Well, as a thank you... Mr. Astor asked Margaret and her daughter Helen if they'd like to go on their honeymoon with them. You know, at that time, this is around uh, 1911, uh, first class traveled in packs. They all got together and all their buddies and they all went on these big giant trips. So it ended up being a three-month trip all through Asia, all through Japan, China, all that area, all through the Middle East. Uh, There's a wonderful photograph of Margaret and her daughter Helen sitting on camels in front of the Great Pyramids of Egypt. Um... As a matter of fact, written on that says something along the lines of ships that pass in the night, which is kind of a foreboding thing to put on there. One month later, in the spring of 1912, they're in France, and Margaret had a regular room ready for her at the Ritz at all times because she was always there. And she came downstairs one morning, and there was a telegram from her son, Lawrence, who was living here in Missouri, and her first grandchild had been born while they were traveling, a, a son, her grandson. Well, Lawrence had telegrammed her to say that the, the child was very, very ill and needed her to come back to help fair, care for this poor baby. And so, of course, she was panicked and went right to Mr. Astor and said, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to cut this trip short. What's the fastest way back to the United States? Well, Mr. Astor said, oh, Mrs. Brown, you're in luck. I've just boarded pa- booked passage on the finest ocean liner in the world. It's going to be making its maiden voyage from Cherbourg, France, in just a few days. It was Titanic. Uh-huh. Lucky you. Just so happens there's a boat headed right to, right right to the United the States. States. You betcha. So Margaret left Helen behind in Paris because Helen was with her friends, and Margaret was traveling alone. Then you know what happened. Titanic sinks. Uh, it's very tragic. Um In her travels, one of the things that's so remarkable about Margaret Brown is she was able to learn five languages fluently. She spoke Russian and French and Spanish and Italian and English and something else. And uh, one of the things that she was so 
important about Titanic was when they brought women and children up from steerage as they were loading the lifeboats, these women did not speak English and they were just panicked. They did not understand what the chaos was. So Margaret was able to communicate with them and kind of calm them and tell them what to do. And they got them on the lifeboat. So she was helping load the lifeboats. Well, at one point, somebody behind her said, well, Mrs. Brown, don't you think you should? And she was like, oh, I'm not getting on that little boat. I mean, she's on the largest man-made moving object in the world. 11 stories tall, the biggest thing ever made. And they want her to get on this little 20-foot dinghy and be lowered by rope 11 stories into the dark North Atlantic. And she's like, yeah, I think I'll take my chances. This ship's not going to sink. We're good, you know. Well, they don't give her a choice. Two men picked her up from behind by her elbows and dropped her into lifeboat number six as it was being lowered. So she did not get down to her bloomers she did not have a pistol or all these things that they show in the movie thank you for joining us for the hannibal rivertown review podcast we'll get back to the show in just a moment we want to remind you that if you like what you're hearing be sure to subscribe and leave us a review also for comments and suggestions you can email us at rivertownreview at gmail.com and visit us at rivertownreview.com and rivertown review on facebook she gets dropped into the lifeboat and she's wearing a sable shawl that JJ had given her for Christmas many years before. She had the foresight to put on all kinds of extra clothing. She looks around. There's only 26 people on this boat. It's supposed to hold 64. So she instantly knows, okay, this is a serious problem. The other thing is these are all first-class ladies on board. They're all in their nightgowns and they're shivering and freezing to death because they don't have any common sense. And so she's like, oh God, okay. So she starts taking clothes off and giving them out and giving and. There were only three men on her lifeboat, and one of them was Robert Hitchens, who was the quartermaster of Titanic, a terrible person, and was just wailing about how they were all going to drown, they were going to freeze to death, they were going to die, and she finally did tell him, just shut up. I mean, he was just <laughs> going on and on. Well, I'm not quite sure how, but when you see the pictures from the real Titanic, he ends up wearing her sable shawl. <laughs> she even gave up her shawl for him to be wrapped in because he didn't have enough sense to dress warmly, right? Whiny. Maybe maybe it just shut him up. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. If I give you the shawl, will you, will you just, just shut up? Right. Well, the other funny thing was nobody on the boat knew how to use oars. They didn't know how to row a boat. She's like, well, I'm from Hannibal. I know how to row a boat. Yeah, you right? grew up on the Mississippi for yeah. heaven's sake. So yeah. she teaches everybody how to row. So... Ipso facto, the Carpathia comes, they get saved. Now, one of the most things that one of the things that I'm the most proud of when I tell Molly Brown's story is that when they got on Carpathia, before they even asked your name, the first thing they asked was, Are you first class? Are you second class? Are you third class? They started separating people by class. First class got nice warm bunks underneath. Uh, upstairs on the deck was where they put the steerage people with just a deck chair and a blanket. Well, Margaret realized early on that the women and children that had been saved, and especially the immigrants that were coming over, were in deep trouble when they got to the United States. And here's why. When her parents came over during the potato famine, uh, they sold everything they had just to book passage on the ship. They came with just a satchel. Many of these immigrants that were coming over on Titanic had the exact same experience. Well, now even the satchel was gone. They had lost everything. But most importantly to these women and children, they had lost their sources of income. They're men. Women didn't work back then. And when you get to the shore of the United States, the first thing they're going to ask is, what's your source of income? Where are you going to live? How are you going to be able to maintain, you know, and start a life here? Well, if you did not have good answers for that, they were going to put you on a ship and take you back home. 
So to add insult to injury, these women were going to be deported because they had lost their sources of income. Well, Margaret couldn't stand for that. So she formed what became known as the Titanic Survivors Committee. She formed a committee right there on Carpathia, went around to all her first-class friends and said, okay, uh, do you have any stocks that you pulled from your safe? Do you have any jewelry that you saved from Titanic? No, you don't have anything? Well, just sign this piece of paper, an IOU, and you can make good on it when we get to the shore. Well, she raised, at the time, $10,000. In today's money, it's like $250,000. And it was just earmarked so that these women and children would have the means to start a new life in America. And not one family was deported unless they were requested to go back home. So she was able to start new lives for all of the women and children that were aboard Carpathia. And on top of that, uh, she was named the chairwoman of the Titanic Survivors Committee, which she would chair for the rest of her life. And every year, she would go to Nova Scotia to the graveyard there of all the Titanic uh, people. And she would lay wreaths on the graves of all the people who perished aboard Titanic. So she was always, Titanic was always a very, very serious part of her life. Mm-hmm. Okay. The misconception, because there's a lot of them out there about, about uh, I started to say Molly Brown. That's, to me, that's that's number one right there. She one was, misconception, she was never called Molly Brown in her lifetime. Nope. Uh, she was called Mrs. J.J. Brown or Margaret by her, by her family. Um, Molly Brown was a, Molly is a euphemism for an Irish lass. And so when they decided to write this uh, play in the 1960s to recreate her life, Margaret didn't rhyme very well. And so then they thought, oh, Molly, she was a Molly, right? An Irish lass. So they called her Molly Brown and that's how the name stuck. So actually that was a, an invention, a theatrical invention in the 1960s. Which, which pretty much describes the basic plot of the whole thing. You talk about inventions uh is, is there other, other, a, other than the fact that it happened in colorado it, that's about it isn't it well let me explain how far-fetched this movie is there's not <laughs> one frame of that film that is accurate in the movie <laughs> right then i know and i said that to a lady at one of my performances once and she almost cried she's like that's my favorite movie of all time you can't tell me that in the movie, she is. you see a six-month-old baby floating down the Colorado River in a wooden cradle. And the backstory is that there's this crazy flood in Colorado and that her parents have died and she's unsinkable. So she's in this wooden cradle floating down the river and a mountain man plucks her to safety and raises her as this hellcat in the mountains, uneducated, uncouth, can't speak decent English, thinks she's a tomboy. None of that could be further from the truth. I mean, nothing you, about Hannibal. No, no, Hannibal. And I watched the movie going, oh, I can't wait to see what they say about Hannibal. Nothing. 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 She started in Colorado. I had an argument once with a man from Denver who absolutely told me, he said, no, she was born in Denver. I said, honey, I'm going to take you by the hand and walk three blocks around the street and I'm going to show you the house that she was born in. <laughs> it's amazing that people just do not understand that she's from Han- I lived in Missouri my whole life. I didn't know she was from Hannibal until I moved here, you know? Sure. So that's a big misconception there, a big one. So we've got the fact that she was never called Molly. Molly, never called Molly. Actually was from Hannibal. Yeah, really was from Hannibal. And that's one of the biggest stories to tell. The, the, the whole movie there's, there's a misconception. Well, here's right another there. one about the That's movie. 2.5. And it, the okay. movie. Well, one thing about the movie that everybody brings up and they ask me, so this probably should be number three, is did she really burn the money in the stove? The answer is, <laughs> of course not, because money back then 
would be gold and silver. And you, even if you threw it in the fire, it wouldn't burn. And so, no, she did not burn the fortune in the stove. That is another misconception about Mrs. Brown. The other thing is this. Even in James Cameron's Titanic, as much as I love Kathy Bates, and God love Kathy Bates because as big as I am, I couldn't play Molly Brown if it weren't for Kathy Bates. If I had to look like Debbie Reynolds, I'd never get away with this. Or, or Reba McIntyre. It was supposed to be Reba, Reba McIntyre. Yeah, her yeah, cute little redhead self. So. Mm -hmm. I'm more of a Kathy Bates type, just so for you podcasters can kind of get a visual. Mm. Kathy Bates, even her, she plays Molly as kind of a gall darn kind of a girl who's uncouth and and that they kind of shy away from her when they when she comes for tea, that they don't really want to be associated with her. There is absolutely nothing that could be further from the truth. Everything I have learned about Molly is that she was so well embraced by society. She was eccentric. She was crazy and wild and fun, but they loved her. And she was the best dressed at every party. It was in the society papers in Newport, Rhode Island, that people waited with wait, bated breath to see what she was going to wear. And not because it was so outlandish and crazy. It was because it was so elegant and beautiful. The other thing is, is that she spoke very well. She was hanging out with Alva Vanderbilt and John Jacob Astor IV. So I think what she had the ability to do, and this makes her even more of a remarkable person, every year of her life, she came back to Hannibal to visit family. She traveled to Missouri. She loved St. Louis. I think she could travel in these circles, come home, and get back into the vernacular of being an Irish lass from over on Dinkler's Alley. But then when she went back to Newport, she could assume the role of a high society hostess and perform beautiful parties and functions and would fit into that society just as equally well as anybody else on the planet. And that was a very important thing. Another thing that I think is really important for people to know about Maya is a bit of a misconception is that she was probably one of the most generous, hardworking fundraisers of anybody that's ever lived, she went to every first-class friend she had and was constantly begging them for money so that she could build orphanages, so that she could build juvenile detention centers for young boys so that they didn't get thrown in prison with grown men. Uh, she, her, her brother died very young. She raised her three nieces as if they were her own. And this is all on a single lady's stipend that she was getting from a an estranged husband. I mean, it wasn't as though she had great wealth, but I think she had a great way of managing what she did have, maximizing it out, putting herself in places to where she was with the right people and made her case to what the causes that she believed in and got people on board with her and they helped her. And I think that was a big thing. I think the very last thing I want to say is this. The one thing that I've learned about her experience on Titanic, and I've shared this, uh, the most profound way that I ever shared this was she was honored by the Missouri uh, American Legion. We got a big award from the American Legion. And in that speech in accepting the award, I said, I think one of the things that people don't realize about Margaret is that I truly believe she suffered from uh, survivor's guilt. She was in that boat and watched 1,500 other people die when she had no reason to be on that lifeboat. It just was circumstance. And I think when you go through that traumatic of an experience, it makes you feel as though, you know, why was I given this gift of extra time? Why, why, what's special about me that God plucked me to safety when so many others didn't, even, even babies and children? And so... I think when you survive something like that, when you survive a war, 
and you are one of a platoon of, that gets wiped out, but you're one of the ones that actually makes it, you have survivor's guilt. And what that leads you to do, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, you have to make every moment of your life from that point on meaningful. It has to be, it has to have value so that you can justify being given that extra gift of time. And I think that's why she threw herself into these amazing causes and women's suffragette and, you know, all the things that she did, I think was just an insatiable need to satisfy the guilt of being one of the survivors of Titanic. And I think that's something that, that's the part of the story that people don't talk about. One other thing I'm going to add about that, when women's suffrage finally passed August of 1920, a lot of people don't know this, the very first vote cast by a woman in the United States was right here in Hannibal, Missouri. Marie Byram cast her ballot for her first ward congressman, uh, councilman, I always say that wrong, councilman, and she was the first recorded woman to vote in the United States after suffrage was passed. And Molly, I'm sure who was alive at that time, would have been absolutely delighted that that happened in her hometown. Definitely. I tell you, there, there is a word that I don't use. There's a word I don't use a lot because everybody uses it and gets overused. This has been awesome. <laughs> this has just been absolutely awesome. In the actual sense, not like, yeah. hey, dude, that was awesome. awesome. As in, as in no. like awe-inspiring, I think, if, if you if – you, did not know about Molly Brown other than the musical or the, you know, or the, the Titanic. We're, we're setting a record for eye rolls here. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's for sure. Yeah. From all of But this. you know, God loved the movie. It did leave her, it did keep her name in the public eye. And that movie spawned the volunteer group here in Hannibal in the 1970s to save her birthplace to recreate it because it was almost gone. So just that movie alone got people gathered together and say, you know what, this is somebody important. She's from Hannibal. We should save her house. And so that is still open as a museum here in town. So, you know, it, it serves its own purpose. But the thing about Molly to me and why I'm so passionate about it is because it is such a privilege for me to be able to tell that story. And that's the thing about history is if you don't keep telling these stories, they fade away. People forget and they they don't understand. And fortunately, there are enough what I like to call titaniacs in the world that people that are interested in Titanic that when you really do hear Margaret's story and folks, I just scratched the surface, literally just scratched the surface. Um, maybe podcast eight could be a continuation of Molly Brown's story because there's more to tell. But the idea is, if you're interested at all in this, feel free to contact us here in Hannibal and we'll be happy to tell you more. But also do your own research because there's a lot of wonderful things about Molly that are now online. There are really only two books that have been written. And I'm saying this for completely self, uh, self-purposes because one of the two books I wrote. But mm-hmm. um, there's so much more to her story. I'm just encouraging everybody, if you're into history, if you love Titanic, learn more about Molly Brown. And there's really not much more we can say. Uh, Other other than the fact that, once again, I mean, Hannibal inspired someone who went on to greatness for not just for being a survivor, but for doing something, like you said, with the time that she had. And and, an amazing story. And you can come here to this small town on the Mississippi River and see where... Where it all began. Where it all began. This tiny immigrant's cottage. When you see this three-room cottage... And you realize that she attended the coronation of King George V in Westminster Abbey. To go from point A to point B, that is a life. 
That is a lifetime. And that's the one thing that my book covers is what was happening in Hannibal during her childhood that would have given her the experiences to prepare herself for this life. And so that's a big story just on its own. Real quick, since you've, you've talked about the book, uh, for if people want, we're so so over time uh, but, but that's an that's, well, that's, so but that's we okay will, we will post the um i'm sure you can purchase it online yes yeah. it's on amazon rivertownreview.com yep. yep. we'll post the link there yes. yes it's called molly brown from hannibal missouri by ken and lisa marks m-a-r-k-s and uh uh it's a wonderful book uh, published by the history press uh, it's available at the titanic museums if you're in pigeon forge or in branson uh, it's on amazon we sell it here in hannibal several locations so yes if anybody's interested in that book uh, contact us anywhere you can, and we'll be happy to get you a copy. That is Lisa Marks, and we're and we're not done with Lisa. We we have we have more we have more ground to cover. Uh, but uh, we've we've told you all the places to go. We hope you've enjoyed this because this is this has been amazing. I'm Harold Smith. And I'm Megan Rapp. And uh, this is Rivertown Review, the podcast, and we will see you next time. Thank you for joining us for Rivertown Review, the podcast. For more information on all things Hannibal, visit our website rivertownreview.com If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes, please email us at rivertownreview at gmail.com And be sure and join Megan and Harold next time for Rivertown Review, the podcast.